This is Dario Lalia, and this right here, episode 27. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7-Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobster, the cash flow ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. But whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place mr hollywood himself presents the before the millions podcast and now your host deray olalaye what's going on btm community we're back for another installment this is Dora olalaye and if this is your first time tuning in welcome to a brand new episode of the before the millions podcast i'm glad to have you here guys this episode we are interviewing ceo of bootstrap legal Amy Wan. You know, I love Amy's story. She started off as a lawyer. She started off as an SEC lawyer. She still practices law to this day, but she doesn't work for a major corporation as most lawyers do. She doesn't work by the hour as most lawyers do. As a small business owner, we're often bogged down with the idea of having legal counsel, with the idea of having somebody review our contracts, review our website, review our copywriting, review our sales. Like We don't even think to do those type of things because we know automatically that getting any type of legal counsel is going to cost an arm and a leg. Now, what's fascinating about the times that we're in is that we're able to, through these platforms on the internet, we're able to democratize the whole space in general. Those high hourly rates that legal counsels like to charge you just to change one or two, three words, those high hourly rates that legal counsels like to charge you just because it's protocol, those high hourly rates that legal counsel like to charge just because they can and you have no alternative. Well, that stops now, guys. There are these companies that are coming out that are democratizing this whole system and quite literally giving access to legal counsel for small business owners that never thought that they would be able to have access to such means. So, I mean, we've been able to, and as a small business owner, you're able to hire an accountant. You're able to hire an assistant. You're able to hire a bookkeeper. You're able to outsource a lot of these different things that won't necessarily cost you an arm and a leg, but will make a major difference in your business. And one thing that we haven't really been able to do is is hire hire legal counsel. Again, that that's just because that's primarily because of the high price point. So, talking with Amy today, she literally walks us through her mindset and what she envisions for her platform and what she envisions for the industry as a whole. Companies like her company are literally able to go in the industry and shake things up by offering these streamlined processes. They're able to charge much lower rates. And in turn, those much lower rates in the market, they push prices down. So it's a win-win for all of us. Well, except legal counsel who likes to charge by the hour, regardless of what minuscule tasks they're doing. And they do this a lot. They've always done this a lot. It's part of the norm. It's part of the culture. It's what you do. 
Amy talks us through raising money. And some listeners have asked, how do I raise money for a deal? How do I get into a real estate deal without my own fund? How do I use other people's money? Well, Amy walks us through the legal way to raise money, exactly what you need to do and how you need to go about raising money. You want to visualize some of the things that Amy is saying, because some of the things that she quite frankly talks about goes over a lot of our heads. So if you're like me, you want to visualize some of these things. You want bullet points, you want website links, you want explanations. And we're And we're going to have all of that, guys, for you in the show notes. So every episode, and we're changing up our show notes, guys, they're going to be really, really detailed, really, really informative, and they're going to get you to the nucleus of the episode. So you guys can can always follow along. Or if you're driving, if you're you're at the gym, whatever it is that you're doing, you're not able to take notes. You don't have to, guys. You really don't have to. We're going to have our show notes prepared for you. Now, if you're using an iPhone, of course, you would go to the podcast app and you literally just go to the Before the Millions podcast and you would see the show notes for every single show highlighted out for you. And you'll see links, you'll see timestamps, you'll see everything that you need. And if you're using another podcast app, then I'm sure that the show notes work a similar way. But if not, you can always visit us at our website at beforethemains.com. But more specifically for the show notes, you can visit beforethemains.com slash episode and whatever the episode number is. So for this case, it would be beforethemillions.com slash episode 27. So episode 27, and it'll take you right to the show. You can listen to it and view the show notes at the same time. So again, this is one of those really, really technical episodes, so it wouldn't hurt to follow along with the show notes. With that being said, guys, I'm excited. Let's get into the tip of the week. DeRay's tip of the week. Okay, guys, so quick tip of the week, man. I've been listening to some amazing podcasts lately, some amazing episodes, some great takeaways. And sometimes it's like, man, there's so many things to do. I don't know what to implement, when to implement and how to implement them. But anyways, the quick tip for this week is... Start implementing some of the things that you're coming across, not only podcasts, but books. Let's talk about books. You know, we often, at least my listeners, we're all we're all soaking up information. We're all looking for ways to, to better ourselves business-wise, investing-wise, so on and so forth. And as we come across information, as we come across good information, last episode was powerful, very, very good information. I took away a lot from that episode, but as we come across good information, and we have these aha moments or we have these light bulb moments. Often there are times in which we don't, we believe that we're going to start implementing some of the things that we hear and some of the things that, that we read, but nine times out of 10, we don't. And then we listen to the next podcast episode or we, we read the next book and we have another aha moment or we have another like groundbreaking. This is the next thing. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. And then we don't implement So what I want you to do, I want you to put the current book down that you're reading, put the current podcast down that you're listening to. I'm not saying stop listening to podcasts. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is until you implement two to three things from the last book that you read, do not pick up the next book. You need to extract some of those things. So if we're not implementing the things that we're learning, it's fruitless. It's pointless. It's a waste of time. And I know that you're not, and I'm not in the business of wasting time. So Let's start implementing them. We're going into a brand new year. Let's make it a year of success. Let's make it a year of triumph. And the way we're going to do this is actually implementing the things that we're learning. So again, drop the book that you're reading. Go back to the last book that you got so much value from and that you said you were going to implement some of the techniques and the habits and the traits and the responsibilities, whatever. You said that you were going to implement the things in that book. Go back to that book and start implementing some of those things and see how that changes or transforms your business. And that's this week's tip of the week. Let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. 
Today, I'd like to welcome Amy Wan to the show. Hey, Amy, how's it going? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful Monday morning here in Dallas. I cannot complain. Where are you speaking to us from today? I am based out in Los Angeles, California. L.A. How's the weather out there? It's pretty good. It's winter for L.A., but that still means there's sunshine and it's like 80 degrees. <laughs> yep, yep. Sounds like Texas. <laughs> Guys, Amy is an attorney who specializes in real estate syndication and crowdfunding for entrepreneurs across the globe. Her mission is to democratize the access to legal counsel and capital. Really quick, let's take it back. Let's go on the time machine. Let's learn who Amy is and how you even came to be the CEO of Bootstrap Legal, how you even came to be an SEC attorney. Let's take it all the way back to college and, and maybe talk about you know your life then and what you were planning to do. Yeah, it's so funny, actually. I never intended to be in finance or capital markets or law. I actually studied biology in undergrad at USC because... My parents pretty much forced me to. I was supposed to go be a doctor or a pharmacist or some other like high achieving science-based job. But that didn't really, you know, didn't really cut it with me. And so basically made a deal with my parents. And, you know, I really wanted to go and basically go to law school to be a human rights attorney. I had done an internship in Ghana and, and all that stuff. And I was really into community activism. So ended up going to USC for law school, had it in my mind to do the whole human rights thing. And my first summer of law school, I interned at a human rights organization in a beautiful island, Fiji. And that was the summer that they pretty much had a military coup and pretty much turned from a democracy to a dictatorship. And that is how I learned that human rights does not cross borders, right? Everything's pretty much at the whim of your local dictator. And I'm just, I kind of have this personality of if I am working this hard, I want to see the results of my actions. And the whole like dictator determining whether or not, you know, things change did not really sit well with me. So I had a mentor at a time at that organization and he told me, you know what, I do human rights for fun but I do international trade for intellectual stimulation. And I thought, huh, that really makes sense. What is the one thing that crosses borders that everyone respects? And that's money, right? So I kind of pivoted to international trade for a while, got my LLM in public international law, ended up doing international trade and international policy for the U.S. government after graduation for a couple of years. So I worked for the Department of State, Department of Transportation, Department of Commerce, negotiating free trade agreements and stuff. And life happens. I met my husband when I was in DC. He was finishing his last year of med school. And if you know anything about <laughs> the medical program, when you go and apply for residency, you go wherever this Nobel Prize winning algorithm tells you to go. So I just told him, try not to get matched like somewhere where I cannot get a job, right? Try a major metropolitan city, please. So he got matched in LA, which was totally fine with me. That's where I was from. But it also meant that to follow him, I pretty much had to leave my first career because there are no free trade agreements to negotiate out in California. So I moved back to California and I was like, hmm, what do I do? I really did not want to go work in one of the litigation firms because I just think in general that litigation is super inefficient, super costly. It's just not what I enjoy doing. Ended up finding a company 
out here in LA that kind of fit that need of everything I was looking for, right? It had to do with money, but at the same time, there was some sort of social component. So that company was actually one of the first real estate crowdfunding platforms at the time. It was called Patch of Land. And I thought what they were doing was really cool because, you know, they were crowdfunding money, but at the same time, and this was like very much right after the recession, they were giving access to capital to people who were who really needed it. And these were primarily house flippers because at the time, if if you remember, for example, in Chicago, there were just all these abandoned houses, foreclosed houses that no one was living in, the neighborhoods were getting dilapidated. And on the other hand, you know, my family's always been in real estate. And the really cool part I thought was that I thought they were democratizing access to investment opportunities. Because the thing is, if you look at me, I know a lot of people are like, oh, you're, you're great, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, like if you just looked at me the, for the first time, I am Asian American and I am female. And I don't think people look at me and say, oh, there's a real estate investor. We should approach her with a deal, right? It's usually like some other guy who's older of a different ethnic background who has a country club membership, right? And so... <laughs> <laughs> that's really where I got my start in finance, real estate, securities law. So I was general counsel there for two years. Then I went on to become partner at a law firm that basically specialized in securities law. And I got to a point last year where I thought I was sitting there every single day drafting these real estate syndication, real estate private equity fund documents. And I thought, you know what? There's a lot of time that I spend on these documents that is quite honestly, it's kind of wasted, right? It's hard to describe to non-attorneys. There's a lot of work that we do that's extremely valuable, but then there's a lot of work that we do. It's like, if you take the last template of your documents and it's almost the same as your previous clients, except maybe this deal has two properties instead of one property, you're literally going through hundreds of pages, pluralizing every use of each property, the property, the properties, right? And you can't just control find or place all because sometimes they reference personal property or intellectual property and it, it just doesn't work to do control find or place all. And I thought, man, if we could automate like all these things, all these repetitive low value things that I hate doing, wouldn't that be amazing? My clients wouldn't have to pay me to spend time doing stupid things and I could get their documents to them faster and cheaper. So I actually left the firm at the beginning of this year, wrote some software, and that's what I'm doing now. So now I run my own company. It's a software company or legal tech company, if you will. It's called Bootstrap Legal. And we partially automate the drafting of what has traditionally been really complex real estate documents. So the best way I can describe it is it's like TurboTax, right? So it's it's not like legal zoom. So it's not just a form filler outer, you know, it's a lot more like TurboTax. It's very complicated. And what the system basically does is it spits out the first draft very close to what I would have drafted as an attorney. And then an attorney takes it from there on and, and brings it to the final draft. So we're not compromising quality, but we are prioritizing efficiency and speed and cost effectiveness. 
That's amazing stuff. I can't wait to ask you all the questions I have about Bootstrap Legal, but let's talk about your story. And you mentioned this before our interview. You mentioned not wanting to trade your time for dollars. And let's talk about that mindset and, and, and how that prompted you to start your business. It's so funny. I think I grew up in a very traditional household. My parents had just very regular jobs, right? My dad was an engineer. My mom was an accountant. And I don't know. I think there's this this cultural thing where it's like, at least the way I was raised, it was always like, grow up, study hard so you can go to a good college and get a good job. Except my senior year of high school, it, it turned into study hard so you can go to good college and marry a good man. And I was like, what? What happened there? You know, I don't, I don't think there was ever an expectation of entrepreneurship for me, even though my dad actually ended up being an entrepreneur. It really was a couple of things that happened. I think at the end of college was when I read one of the books on your list, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I was like, oh, there's something other than having a job, right? So that's, that's the first time the light bulb went off. And then when I was in law school, I read The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And I was like, oh, you can not like sit there at your company every day? Like, what a crazy thought. Of course, like I continued on with my career of public policy and law and everything. I think that the technology to automate things like law, for example, have been around for probably 20 years now, but the legal profession is not incentivized to be more efficient because they get to bill by the hour. And I think a lot of other law firms and attorneys enjoy that, but I think I'm also part of this new generation of attorneys that's like, well, if we could bring down the cost of legal services, wouldn't we be able to get more clients? And wouldn't this mean that every time we get a call at 4 p.m. on a Friday, which is inevitable, it always happens, then I'm not spending so much of my weekend sitting there drafting documents. I can actually go and walk my dog, God forbid. I'm just a fan of doing things or working smart. You know, I work hard, but I would like to not work nearly as hard, right? And so I think there's a lot of potential, at least in the legal industry, for, for doing these things. And, and honestly, at the end of the day, as a lawyer, I think a lot of what we do is a huge benefit to our clients, right? And if you are able to offer that service to more people, because let's be honest, today, the only people who can really afford legal services are large companies and, and wealthy individuals, right? It's not the middle class, it's not the lower class. If you can offer this to more people, isn't that what we all went to law school for in the first place? So it's taken a while, but I'm getting there. (laughs) That's amazing. I love that. I love that. And we're going to talk about being able to offer that service to more people and just kind of democratizing that, that whole arena. But first, what is crowdfunding? Who is it for? When did it start? What's this whole crowdfunding thing? Because it's been, it's been away for quite some time now. And I'm, I participate in a few crowdfunding platforms. But from your perspective, can you kind of explain to our listeners what crowdfunding is? Yeah. So I'm going to rewind back a little bit. So whenever someone is trying to raise capital, especially from passive investors, if they're raising from a group of passive investors, that's what we traditionally call syndication. And when you're doing a syndication or you're you know, raising investment dollars, that's when securities laws come in because there's all these laws that are 
out there to basically protect grandma from Ponzi schemes and, you know, investing her last social security paycheck in something where she might not live to actually see the return or have any liquidity. Crowdfunding is kind of, I would say, like the 21st century version of that, right? And there are different types of crowdfunding, which I'll go over in a second. But basically, crowdfunding is basically, and I'm not going to get too technical here. I'm just going to give you the lay definition. It's basically online syndication. So you're basically raising money from a group of passive investors. But instead of going to meetups and taking people out for a bunch of coffees and whatever, you are going online and maybe you're advertising your deal by LinkedIn or Twitter or podcast or whatever. But now since basically 20, the end of 2013, there are now laws that actually allow you to do this. Previously, you weren't allowed to go out and advertise to the whole world. It's what we call general solicitation, right? Now, a lot of your, your audience has probably heard of Kickstarter and Indiegogo. That's not exactly what we're talking about today. That is what we call rewards-based crowdfunding, right? So I'm giving you $5 and you give me a shout out or a widget or something, right? You're getting a reward. There's also GoFundMe and that does donation-based crowdfunding, right? So I think there are GoFundMe campaigns after every big tragic event or whatever, right? And so if I give $5 for that, all I get back is good, happy feelings by myself, right? That I donated. So it's a donation. What we're talking about is investment crowdfunding. So if I give you $5, well, hopefully more than $5, I'm actually getting back some sort of return on investment. Now I might get equity, it might be debt, so I might get interest, but there is a return of my money. Investment crowdfunding is really closely tied to real estate crowdfunding, although you can use it in basically any other business from restaurants to making a movie to doing a startup. That's amazing. So is there a platform out there or do you know of any people that are able to raise funds for an online business? Yes, actually. So so there's a couple of different crowdfunding regulations and you use each of them based on what exactly your goal is, what your capital raising goal is, and then how you want to be advertising your deal if you want to advertise at all. So there is a new regulation called Regulation Crowdfunding, and that's mostly today where I see internet businesses raising their capital. These tend to be early stage startups, for example, and you can only raise up to a million dollars every 12 months. So this is really good for restaurants and startups, not as great for real estate, right? Because a million dollars doesn't actually get you that far. Most of the people who are raising money by crowdfunding for real estate are using a new rule that we call Rule 506C of Regulation D. And that actually allows you to raise as much as you want, but you are limited to accredited investors only. And just for our audience who doesn't know, what is an accredited investor? Let's debunk the myth that it's this crazy, you have to meet all these qualifications when it's really, really simple. What is an accredited investor? So an accredited investor is basically a relatively rich person, right? So technically what it means is that you have a net worth in excess of a million dollars, excluding your liabilities and your primary residence, or you have an annual salary and have had for the last few years an annual salary 
or income of at least $200,000 if you file singly or three hundred dollars if you file jointly. Got you. So if you are accredited, you are able to participate in a lot of these crowdfunding platforms out there from, like you said, or you haven't mentioned some of these, but I think you mentioned the patch of land, you know, you have Fundrise, you have Realty Shares, things like that. So you're- Oh, there's so many. I mean, yeah. today, I think there's probably over just a real estate crowdfunding platforms alone. There's probably over a thousand. Now you did mention Fundrise. Fundrise is different. Non-accredited. Yep. Yes. So <laughs> yep. Fundrise, so the other, all the other deals and platforms I mentioned, it's much more a la carte investment, right? Whereas Fundrise, they have a fund. It looks a lot more like a REIT, right? And so they are able to use another regulation called Regulation A+. They can raise up to $50 million every 12 months for each one of their funds and raised from non-accredited investors. So Fundrise's, I mean, there's a couple of real estate related Regulation A plus deals out there today. There's also a good number of operational companies that are using Regulation A plus because it's kind of like the new mini IPO. So the Fatburger chain actually just raised a Regulation A plus offering. Oh, wow. So, you know, investors out there looking to invest who maybe aren't accredited, you know, you have hope. There's not this, oh, I'm not accredited, so I'm not able to invest. Let me just lie down and give up now. There are platforms out there who use a different system and have these regulations that allow non-accredited investors to invest, such as Fundrise. And I think the minimum on Fundrise is about $1,000. So for $1,000, you can you can own a security or you can own a, a share. And you can correct me on my verbiage if, if it's wrong, but you, you can own a security in that property. So you can literally be a virtual investor these days. And you couldn't do that before 2013. You had to either be accredited or you had to possibly know the sponsor. So that, I think that's amazing. That's amazing. So Amy, let's fast forward a little bit now. Let's talk about bootstrap legal. Let's talk about democratizing the whole this whole situation because quite frankly, as a business owner, especially as a small business owner, there's a lot of things that you aren't privy to. And most people are really, really scared when it comes to legal counsel, because it sounds like it's going to cost an arm and a leg. So how have you been able to kind of democratize that whole system? Yeah. So my whole theory is that if you can basically have software automate part of the job, right? Then that means it's not an attorney or a paralegal that is sitting there billing whatever hundreds of dollars an hour, pluralizing things or formatting things or whatever, right? So we're not completely replacing the attorney because if you truly want still good quality documents, I don't think you can. And, and for something that's highly regulated like securities, I don't know that you want to go complete automation. And so we have a hybrid model, right? It's first draft is by software and then an attorney finishes it off, kind of smooths everything out to like where it should be. But because we're using a hybrid model, we are actually able to turn around documents faster, right? As an attorney, there were so many little bumps and hurdles that would annoy me, right? So it was like, hey, let me send you an engagement letter. And then you have to like print it out and sign it and scan it and send it back. And, oh, let me send you wire instructions. And I guess not everyone knows how to send a wire just that way. So they like go and drive to the bank and stand in line to send a wire, right? And that takes another day to confirm. And then you would do intake with your attorney and then your attorney would sit there and because they've got all these other clients to take care of, maybe they'll turn around a draft for you in two weeks, right? So just getting your first draft, you're looking at three, three weeks. And as you know, 
time is money when you're raising capital, right? And so I believe the more time you have, the more money you are able to raise or possibly just meet at least your minimum so you don't lose the deal. So here, basically everything is DocuSigned or e-signed. So you don't have to really print anything out. All you do is click a button. We are integrated with Stripe so we can take credit card payments. So everything's a lot more instantaneous. Plus you get to, you know, earn points on your credit card. And then instead of, you know, going into a one hour intake or something, I send people an adaptive questionnaire. And that questionnaire basically asks them as a client, everything I would have asked them as an attorney. So I tell them, hey, take the first stab. And then after you've spent all that time typing in addresses and names and all that stuff that normally I have to dictate over the phone, then we're going to go in and make sure you answered all the questions. An attorney is going to come on the line with you, make sure you answered all the questions correctly, answer any questions that you have. Because for anyone who's used TurboTax, we've always had questions, right? We're like, hmm, how do I answer this? And then once you press the submit button, basically the documents automatically get generated and attorney has 40 hours to do a quick review and get you your first draft. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how much time and money on average, I know it's a fairly new company, but how much time and money would you say that you're saving your, your average client? I would say on average, first of all, it depends on what kind of law firm you go to, right? But I would say a minimum of 2500 To go to a traditional attorney for a $1 million raise, you're probably looking at a bill of anywhere between $10,000 to maybe $25,000, depending on whether you go use some fancy law firm where you're paying for the chandelier, right? So for my system, it's basically a flat fee because I like offering predictability. So the software and legal bundle together, 7,500. I do tell people, you know, there are some third-party costs, so like entity formation or whatever, if they haven't done that yet, that they need to take into account, but that might just be an extra thousand. But, you know, the minimum savings I would say right now is 2,500. Do you think you've stumbled upon like this major cataclysmic shift that you're, you're going to start and there are going to be tons <laughs> of these companies here shortly that's going to drive prices down? I don't know if it's cataclysmic, but I think that there is now a younger, more hungry and entrepreneurial and efficiency oriented generation of attorneys that's a little bit more tech savvy that wants to find new ways of doing things. So I actually run a meetup out here in LA called Legal Hackers, and it's kind of almost like the island of misfit attorneys, right? Because we don't want to bill by the hour. We want to do things efficiently using technology. So I have one friend who quit his big fancy law firm and now he is writing software that automates the drafting of patent applications, for example. So there's actually a good number of attorneys now who across the country are are starting to start businesses like this. That's pretty amazing. I'm excited. I can't wait to see what, what becomes of all of this, but that, that's amazing. So maybe talk about some of the hurdles or challenges that you faced in your business, just kind of getting it off the ground. Oh man, the hardest thing of starting a business is just taking the first step, right? And being like, well, what's the first thing I do? I really wanted to do this, but at the same time for me, I felt like I just needed a tiny nudge or a push in the right direction. And I'm pretty, 
I can't believe I'm saying this on a podcast. I'm pretty cheap actually, right? But all real estate people are, right? But I, I figured that at the end of the day, if I could get some sort of coach or mentor, that would basically be like an investment, right? And if they could save me even a couple months of time in getting me in the right direction, then it would pay for itself. So I went out, I got a business coach. She's fantastic. She's known as the godmother of Silicon Valley. Her name is Cam Kashani. And she gave me exactly what I needed. I, I think she probably actually accelerated my process by one or two years, if anything, right? So I probably got her in March of this year and incorporated the company in April, raised a friends and family round in May and VP in July. So everything has been lightning speed. It has been a really great investment. The hard part, oh man, is finding great vendors and finding great employees. Like human resources is so tough. I can imagine. I can imagine. You mentioned writing code. And what, did you mean that you wrote that yourself or you outsourced that or you hired internally for that? So once upon a time when I was working for the federal government, there were times when I got really frustrated with the bureaucracy. And so I thought, man, I need, to, I need to learn or do something else on the side to not go crazy. So I actually learned a little bit of coding when I was in DC working for the federal government. I wouldn't consider myself a coder, right? I, I am a novice, but I know enough to basically understand the process. So I probably went through three vendors before I finally found the vendor that I worked well with. So I basically prepped the documents, told them what logic needed to be there, what questions needed to be asked, and they coded it for me, and then I would review their code. So I'm not great at coding, but I know enough to be able to review the code. Love it, love it, love it. Well, Amy, this has been amazing. And I want to leave us with one question before we enter the next segment of the show. So let's just say I'm a brand new real estate investor and I have none of my own funds and I'm looking to raise money from private investors. Maybe walk us through a timeline of how things should happen. Should I raise funds first and then go find the deal? Should I find the deal first and then say, okay, I have a deal. This is the deal. Start looking for investors to fund that deal. What's the timeline and what's the order of things would you recommend? Yeah. So the moment that anyone thinks that they might ever be raising capital for anything, real estate or otherwise, there's an acronym I always say, right? It's called ABN, always be networking. Because if you network at the time you are trying to raise money, it's too late to build those relationships and that trust, right? You want to always be doing it beforehand. It's kind of like when you go on LinkedIn because you're trying to find a job and that's when you're trying to meet people. It's too late. You can only harvest the relationships you already have, right? So always be meeting people to formulate that trust and that relationship. Then you go out, you figure out, hey, maybe do I need a mentor? Do I not? If I do need a mentor, well, what asset class am I trying to get into? Am I trying to do multifamily or public storage or how big of a deal size am I trying to go, right? Look for the mentor that specializes in what you want to get into, and then start looking for the property, right? And looking for the property can take a while. You will want to at least have a little money saved up yourself to at least conduct the first round of due diligence and stuff like that. Investor money really comes in when you've okayed everything and you need the money to close. So basically, 
once you've identified the property, you have it under contract, you've gone through the due diligence, then you pick up the phone, call your attorney because they need as much time as possible to get all the documents ready. At the same time, you should be preparing what we call an investment summary. This is typically a 10 to 20 page like PowerPoint or PDF thing. And it kind of explains, it tells about you, right? Your biography, your background, your track record, if any, any other business partners or mentors or whoever is involved in the deal. It talks about the property that you've located, what the potential is. It gives financial projections. It talks about the area, all of that kind of stuff. It talks about your business plan, right? What is your exit strategy? And also what are investors going to get, right? What are their distributions or their IRR, their expected return of investment? What is that going to be? So you put all this in a nice little package. You're going to give that to your attorney. Your attorney is going to prep the documents. Meanwhile, you are out there telling your investors, hey, I have this deal, you know, are you guys interested? Maybe you do a webinar, maybe you do a lot of coffees, maybe you do an email blast to people that you know. And then when you have your documents, that's when you, you go back to all those people who expressed commitment. And this is the part every first syndicator learns, right? If someone expresses interest and they say they're in, it doesn't mean they're in until the documents are signed and they give you money and it's been in escrow for 48 hours. That's when they're in <laughs> because otherwise oral commitments really mean nothing. So hopefully you have raised your minimum, the minimum that you need to close. And so you close the property and to the extent you want to raise more, that's fine. You have some more time afterwards, but that's generally the process. And that's if you are identifying a property that's what we call single asset syndication. Now, if you're doing a blind pool, which is just, I have a plan, this is my plan, I'm going to deploy it, then you don't need to do the property part. It really comes down to just you know raising the money and executing on the plan. Love it, love it, love it. And I said that was the last question, but really quick. So if you're raising, if you're raising a million dollars or if you're looking to, to raise a million dollars, how much should you actually raise? Because like you said, verbal commitments are so much different than actual money in the bank. So how much should you actually raise if you're looking to raise a million dollars? Okay, so that question has many parts. Let's break it down. So let's say the property that you're purchasing is a million dollars. You're likely not going to be actually raising a million dollars from passive investors because you're probably going to get some sort of loan. Maybe it's from a hard money or private money guy. Maybe it's from a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan, right? But maybe they'll give you, I don't know, anywhere from 75, 65, something percent. So really what you're raising, you might be raising let's say between $200,000 to $400,000, right? So that's the actual amount you're actually raising. Now, some syndicators will put in some of their own funds to show confidence and because they want the skin returns the and they believe it. Yes, skin yeah. the game, right? <laughs> you don't have to, but it's always nice, especially for a beginning syndicator. Now, your question was, okay, let's say we do have to raise 400000 how much do I actually need to get in commitments? And there's no answer to that because it always depends on how well you know your investor base. My more experienced syndicators, they will go out, they find a property, they send one email blast out to their investors that they've known for 10 or 20 years, right? Maybe they do a webinar and 
they raise four to five million dollars in one week. That's all they need, right? Versus someone who's more beginning, they're probably going to go to their friends and family. They might go to some people that they've met through, you know, investment clubs or whatever. It is a harder process. The commitments don't nearly mean as much. And so it really depends on the experience of the syndicator and how well they've groomed their investor base. If these people have been investing with them for a while, right? And they have a great track record. They're getting distributions. Their commitment means a lot more than someone who's just starting out. And this is the first time they're investing with this syndicator. We recommend only the best books on this show. With that being said, we can understand the urge to read the last book you've heard an entrepreneur get excited about. Well, guess what? You can go read it right now. We've partnered with Audible, an Amazon company that produces high quality audiobooks. Together, we are offering, and for free, a 30-day trial and one free book as soon as you sign up. So, if you've been eyeing a certain book but haven't quite been able to pull the trigger yet, we'd love to cover the cost for you. Just visit audibletrial.com slash before the millions to start reading or listening to your next free book. The link is also in the show notes of this episode at beforethemillions.com. The best real estate investing advice ever show is literally the only daily podcast that I subscribe to. And now I'm prescribing for you. The world's longest running daily real estate podcast. That's unprecedented. Visit joefearless.com slash show for the back catalog. Enjoy. Lifestyle design acceleration hacks. What is your favorite before the millions book? I think I mentioned it before, but the one that really made the light bulb go off in my head, even though I've read a bunch of them, was the four hour work week. And that really just started getting me thinking, man, like there's got to be a way to work harder. Definitely, definitely love that, love that. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. Calendly. I used to go back and forth trying to schedule meetings, right? I even had virtual assistants and it was such a pain. And sometimes like you forget, right? Because your inbox is so big. Sending a Calendly link and letting them schedule is so easy and just saves so much time. And if you can sync that with like your Google Calendar, it's even better. Yes, yes, I, I completely agree. I'm a big fan of Calendly, so great recommendation. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? Being your own boss, even though scary and you have a lot of responsibilities, is awesome, right? Like today, I'm doing this podcast from home and I told my employees, like, I'll be in after the podcast. So otherwise, it's like, oh my gosh, I have to like wake up at seven to get to the office and set up in time for a 9 a.m. podcast. (laughs) Love it, love it, love it. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? I think everyone is different, but for me, my knowledge base is a lot of subject matter expertise and its skill set in terms of management and people and politics and how to work, right? It took me several years. I don't think I could have done it right out of college or law school, but you know, I think I had to work in a lot of very different, challenging, high-level jobs before I was able to start my own company. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? 
I'm going to go back and say my business coach, Cam Kishani. She kind of like just gave me the nudge I needed in the right direction, but the other person would be my husband. I had a lot of doubts. I never thought I would be an entrepreneur and he has been so supportive and has always seen my potential and been 100% behind me. Amazing, amazing. Why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention on getting to the millions? Gosh, there's so many reasons. <laughs> I think just, I think naturally, right? I believe in the Pareto principle. Everything in the world is divided into 80-20. So I think 20% of people are leaders, 80% are followers. 20% of people are able to go and like do their own thing, whereas 80% much more like to conform. So that's one reason. But I do think we are starting to enter this age where the internet makes a lot more things possible, but also technology automates a lot more. So jobs in the future are about to get harder, right? And so I think people are going to have to start thinking a lot more creatively in the future on how do I create my own destiny rather than, oh, how do I apply for my next job? Oh my goodness. I love that so much, Amy. That was amazing. Well, this has been a wonderful episode and we have so many nuggets, so many takeaways. Amy, this has been amazing. We, we've learned about your lifestyle. We've walked through your journey and it, it's been amazing. So I want to thank you again for sharing your insight with us and kind of walking us through the SEC, the multifamily syndication process and, and crowdfunding in itself. I think that that's amazing. It's an amazing platform. It's an amazing concept. And I think that the sky's the limit for crowdfunding, especially in the age that we're in now. It's it's transforming before our eyes and it's, I can't wait to see what, what's to become of it. So if the listeners kind of want to get to know you a little bit more, learn about your company and kind of maybe even use your services, where can they reach out to you? Yeah, sure. So they can always go to bootstraplegal.com and schedule a consultation there if they want. People can also find me on LinkedIn, but I would say if they're going to connect with me, just make sure you write a note because I get too many LinkedIn requests nowadays and I don't add anyone who doesn't, I think there's like bots who just go around adding people on LinkedIn. So make sure you write a note so I know it's actually not a bot. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Well, gang, there you have it. This has been a fantastic episode. And Amy, I thank you so much. We'll definitely have to bring you back on for part two and, and talk a little bit more about this process because there's so much I wanted to cover that we didn't cover. So we thank you and we salute you and we'll talk soon. All right, great. Thanks so much for having me.